Hey, what's good, y'all? So today we got a story about a man who got tired of waiting for change to come to him. So he got busy. Our reporter, Bethel Habte, is going to tell you all about it right after this short break. In the heart of Paris, on the banks of the Seine River, there's a swanky-looking building. One side is covered with lush plants and huge glass windows. Another side has these giant avant-garde red, orange, and brown blocks protruding out of it. If you make your way to the top, you'll find a terrace with a stunning view of the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it's right there. This building is a museum, one I probably would have been excited to visit before working on this story. The museum is called the Quai Branly. It's dedicated to showcasing art from Africa, the Americas, and Asia, right in the middle of the city famous for its cultural offerings. And I think the instinct is to be happy whenever the work of Black and Indigenous people is presented in high places. But one man, a guy named Mwazulu Diabanza, has a huge problem with the Musée du Quai Branly. And to raise the alarms, he broke the number one rule of museums. Look, don't touch. Mwazulu touched something. He reached over the invisible line between the exhibits and the viewers, because for him, a line had been crossed a long time ago. I'm Bethel Habte, and this is Resistance, a show about refusing to accept things as they are, even when it means making noise in a place you're not supposed to. I couldn't go to Paris to report this story, of course, but I linked with a friend of a friend there, a British-Nigerian filmmaker named Rosie Collier. She actually remembers seeing a headline about Mwazulu back in June. Mwazulu Diabanza, and I thought, oh, that's a beautiful name. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, oh yeah, he's just, you know, my type of hero. Rosie met up with Mwazulu in November at a train station on the outskirts of Paris. She was early, but after just a few minutes of waiting, she saw Mozulu walking through a turnstile, wearing a big winter coat, a black mask, and a black beret. They exchanged hellos, but that was about it. He is extremely quiet, almost unnervingly quiet. He just didn't express any of his emotions until we got into the interview. And it was then that I saw the revolutionary in him. Mozulu took off his coat, and suddenly, he looked like a guy who had something to say. He had a long black tunic um, with insignia on each shoulder, and the insignia was um, embroidered with a map of Africa. It was really interesting. And then he had a, a large white bead necklace with two kind of what looked like fangs or teeth coming out of the bottom. And this beret, you know, he has, without doubt, the look of a revolutionary. And also, you know, he acts like a revolutionary. When Mozulu does speak, he speaks in big, sweeping statements, bold declarations. When Rosie asks him to introduce himself, he says his name, and then he says, These days, I'm considered a messenger for liberty. 
Now, I raise my eyebrows when I hear something like that, and maybe you do too, but I think if any of us were born in Moiselu's shoes, we'd be hardcore revolutionaries too. At the very least, we'd be pissed. Mozulu is 42. He was born and raised in Kinshasa, the capital of what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. He was raised by his mother, who'd make sure to tell him stories of his past. My mother's side of the family are descendants of Tumba Vemba, that lineage that included a lot of chiefs during the days of the Kingdom of Congo. And my mother always told me stories, stories about my forefathers, stories about my ancestors, many of whom ruled as kings, many others were notable in that they were officials in the ancient kingdom of Congo. And more recently, the last among them was my mother's grandfather and my great-grandfather, who was governor of Pangu province. My mother would tell me many stories about him because he was the last ruler in our family. The last ruler because in the late 1800s, King Leopold II of Belgium decided to carve this piece of Africa out for himself. It was a brutal rule. His troops enslaved Congolese men to mine rubber and ivory. They would hold women and children hostage until they met their quotas. Those who didn't meet their quotas or tried to escape, Leopold's men would burn down their villages, kill their children, or cut off their hands. There are a disturbing number of pictures of Congolese people posing with the scars of this violence. But those were just the survivors. It's estimated that between 1885 and 1908, the population of Congo was cut in half. Something like 10 million people were estimated to be murdered at the hands of Leopold's men, or starved or died from exhaustion or diseases brought over from Europe. And what was brought back to Europe? from Belgium's conquest in Congo, and France, and Britain, and Germany, and Portugal, and Italy, and the Netherlands' conquests all over the African continent, were these cultural objects, stolen artifacts, family heirlooms, sentimental and spiritual things. This hit Mazulu's great-grandfather personally. Most of the objects associated with his rule were pillaged and stolen most of which happened when the Westerners, the Europeans, came. Mozulus come to think of African artifacts abroad as war booty, just behind glass in fancy halls. You should understand that beyond every artwork, there are entire families, there are entire villages, there are entire peoples who have been decimated, who have been massacred murdered, and raped. Mozulu has been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, it's part of his family story. He thought about it in his teens when he traveled to Haiti and learned that the U.S. military destroyed or stole voodoo artifacts with ties to Africa. He thought about it some more when he moved to Paris in 2000 and started organizing with his group, Unity, Dignity, Courage. Then, in 2017, it seemed like the French president himself started thinking about it. Mozulu saw a video of Emmanuel Macron, this fresh, young, progressive dude, speaking to a group of students in Burkina Faso. In his speech, he told the crowd, to cheers, that African art belonged in Africa, that it shouldn't just be sitting in European private collections, and that he was going to do something about it. So Macron ordered a commission, 
The commission did some research, and a year later, in 2018, they published a report. The report said there were about 45,000 objects sitting in French collections that France had no legitimate right to. But in the two years since that report was published, France has only committed to returning 27 items. They've only actually returned one. One out of 45,000. Oh, and that one? It's a sword from Senegal. France only loaned it back. They didn't even get it back for good. Moiselu watched as Macron's promises fell to pieces. He was mad and he was sick of waiting. We are not waiting for Emmanuel Macron's good fate, in quotation marks. He has chosen 26 objects of his choice, 26 objects that he decided are a priority. He won't give you the valuable ones. Why would he? When France decided to take his route, France refused to fess up to its past. Refuse d'avouer les crimes. Refuse de réparer. Refused to admit its crimes. Refused to pay reparations. Wazulu started to wonder if there was another way to get this done, to put the heat on. It would have to be bold, something that would make headlines, something they couldn't ignore. And so, on the morning of June 12, 2020, he put on his beret and he got ready to go. Le matin, j'étais tranquille. J'étais tranquille. That morning, I was calm. I think I spoke to my partner to tell her I was going somewhere to carry out an intervention. Mozulu called four of his friends and told them, meet me on Pont de l'Alma Bridge by the Eiffel Tower for a quote-unquote political discussion. He got on a train and went to go meet his, his friends. He is the first to arrive. He then waits for a few minutes for his comrades to arrive. And he said to them apparently that, um, you know, uh, we've been discussing this issue of repatriation of, of African art for some time, um, but today is a day we need to take some action. They walked over the bridge toward the Cape Branly. They approached that fancy building covered in lush greenery that attracts more than a million visitors a year because it was kind of the worst offender. It's where most of the 45,000 pieces mentioned in that government report, stuff France has and should return, are, either on display or in storage. Mozulu hadn't told his friends exactly what he planned to do inside the museum. All he said was, Okay, please buy your tickets. Let's go in. After the break, Moiselu goes in. Welcome back. Wazalu and his friends have just bought their tickets. He's about to come face to face with objects he spent years thinking about. Objects he's come to associate with the same horrors his family faced. I've been preparing myself to be in a spiritual state of mind. He's walking through a long garden in the front entrance and approaches the doors of the Cape Branly. 
pretty much as soon as he got to the museum, there's this transition moment. T'es très lourd. He started to feel heavy. Je me sentais très lourd. Je sentis une force. And I felt a force. Soudain. And then suddenly. Et j'avais vu un signe qui m'a parlé. Je voyais des scènes horribles. I saw the most horrible scenes. Moiselu says he had a vision. Dans mes oreilles, j'entendais les cris des Africaines, des enfants qui criaient. I could hear the screams of Africans. Yambula, Yambula, ça dit abandonne, laisse, ne touchez pas, laissez. Of children screaming, Yambula, Yambula, which means go away, go away, leave, leave, don't touch, leave. En fait, le film est de ce qui s'est passé. As if it was a film um, of these children at the time where objects were being taken. That's what he told me. It's at that point he realized, okay, this is what I've got to do. I've got to do it now. And that it's not just about me or my comrades around me, but it's also about liberating the spirits that are contained within the objects within the museum. Mwazalu and his crew start walking through the echoey halls of the museum. He's not been to this museum before. He's not done any kind of a wreck. He doesn't know where things are spaced. They're walking for about three or four minutes when they stop in front of this one piece. That's when his crewmate starts filming. It's a vertical video. Mozilu's wearing a long black tunic and a black beret on his head. He holds his hands in front of him as he speaks to the camera. To get in here, all of us here, we each paid nine euros. Make a calculation of how many millions and billions museums in Paris have been made over the years through our objects. Moiselu starts to gesture at the piece on display next to him. It's not in a glass case or anything. It's a brown pole that's about four feet high and five inches thick, with a head and a face carved in at the top. It's secured at the bottom. The plaque next to it says it's a funeral pole from Central Africa. He recognized it because uh, funeral poles are something um, that are used pretty much across Black Africa. It's something, I mean, I, I've seen it as well in um, my mother's uh, native village, that those, uh, those things are quite common, you know, even today. A funeral pole isn't just a standard headstone. It's got a deeper spiritual significance. So when somebody has died and you bury that person, then you would basically use the pole as a stake. You would place it in the ground, just eight millimeters, so less than a centimeter into the ground. The idea being, or the symbolism being, is that you're connecting the person who's died with the, 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 the soil, the land uh, of their ancestors. So, Africans have even lost their identity in death. Moiselu stands next to the funeral pole, chatting at the camera. And then suddenly, he stops talking and steps up onto the display ledge, past that invisible line in museums that tell you where you can and can't be. He gently wraps his hands around the pole, and starts rocking it back and forth like it's a giant lever. He's trying to shake it free. Mm-hmm. 
you see him um, sort of wrestling with it, but at the same time sort of talking and explaining, okay, this is why we're taking it, this is why it needs to be take, taken. Or, um, you know, I've always said, and I always will say, that um, you, not, you don't need to ask the permission of a, a thief to take back what is stolen. Um, but he's, yeah, really. So he's like prying it <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah. And as he's prying it, he's just sort of going through this monologue to, to, to the rest of the museum. Yeah, exactly, yes. And then a friend comes and uh, assists him, basically, and between the two of them, they manage to prize it away. And, and then, yeah, he, he takes it and, he, you know, he puts both arms around it and you can see him really sort of caring and feeling physically, spiritually, mentally connected uh, to this object. Mwazulu starts to walk away with the pole. No alarm goes off. Nobody tries to restrain him. There's a guard who hollers over at him. But that's about it. As he walks toward the door, he starts to get louder. And that's when really the, the sermon, as I like to call it, uh, begins. Moiselle's voice booms through the museum. Every once in a while, he passes a cavernous area that amplifies it even more. He's striding around the museum, um, you know, telling anybody who will listen why he's there and, and um, what he intends to do. And then, eventually... The museum security arrived and stopped us from leaving. And so then I tried to appeal to their conscience and to make them see how it's morally wrong for them to guard what has been stolen, what has been pillaged by a provocateur. Emmanuel Macron, prevaricateur. François Mitterrand, prevaricateur. De Gaulle, sort de ta tombe. Napoléon, sort de ta tombe. Le digne fils de Patrice Lumumba est venu récupérer ce que vous avez pillé. Sortez de vos tombes. Tous les diables de l'Occident, tous les dieux maudits de l'Occident. J'ai senti d'abord une paix intérieure. I felt above all an inner peace. I wasn't afraid of anything. L'œuvre de l'esprit, vous l'avez souillé pour faire des millions et des milliards ici. By the time the police arrived, he's he's you know he's on fire. La police est arrivée. The police arrived, and as soon as the police arrived, I launched my first question at them. Qui êtes-vous? Who are you? One or two of the policemen said to me, no, 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 we are the police. La police, vous êtes venu pour? Ce qui se passe, c'est que je suis venu récupérer le bien qui ont été volés. Vous, en tant que la police, vous êtes censé nous aider à identifier les voleurs qui ont volé ces biens. So he says, um, you know, oh, okay, um, well that's good because I want to report a theft. Um, I want you to find a thief. Yeah, um, I want you to find the thieves of these objects. Yes, qui ont été massacrés, violés, des femmes et enfants qui ont été pour faire l'historique du pillage. So at that point, I launched back into the history to explain how all the objects have been pillaged. And and yeah, and you can feel him then trying to persuade or appeal to the police conscience as well, wow. but ultimately, I'm taking a stolen object. I want you as the police to find the thieves. Yeah. Finalement, après 30 minutes, la police a décidé 
Finally, after 30 minutes, the police decided to humbly tell me, well, we understand, but we have to arrest you because there are our orders. So I gave the object to one of my brothers, and they arrested me, and they put me in handcuffs. Then we left calmly, calmly. Moisulu and his four friends were charged with attempted theft. They faced up to 10 years in prison and more than $100,000 in fines. But even with that trial pending, he did it again. Just a few weeks later in July, at the Museum of African, Oceanic, and Native American Arts in Marseille. And even with charges from that pending, he did it again in September at the Africa Museum in the Netherlands. And then, in October, Moisulu and his friends headed to the Louvre. The Mona Lisa and Beyoncé Louvre. And again, he left in handcuffs. For their trial at the heist at the Cabron Lee, police cordoned off the entrance while supporters outside the courtroom shouted, Give us back our artwork. But then, the judge presiding over his case did something surprising. He admitted that there were two trials in front of him. Moisulu's and Europe's. He said that Europe's trial was the trial of colonialism, the trial of the misappropriation of the cultural heritage of nations. With the judge's sympathies, prosecutors recommended all but a slap on the wrist. A 1,000 euro fine from Wazulu, about 500 apiece for each of his friends. Wazulu collected similar judgments on his other actions. He was completely acquitted for one and got small fines for the others. And those fines weren't stopping him. Mwazulu knew that what he was doing was working, because every time he did it, he was bringing more and more attention to the issue. Our objective was to address the world. Done. The second objective was to reopen the debate around repatriation and everything concerning the question of repatriation. Done. Our third objective was to jolt European leaders with a kind of proactive diplomacy. And the proactive diplomacy pushes leaders to react. Early last year, pre-COVID, I booked a summer Euro trip for me and my mom. I'd never been anywhere in Europe and she wanted to see more of it. The trip would have landed us in Paris on my 30th birthday. Of course, it never happened. But if it had, I'm sure the Cabron Lee would have been on our list of places to see. I do love museums. I probably would have walked through the Cabron Lee and seen art from all parts of Africa, maybe even art from the Horn, where my ancestors are from. It probably would have been nice to see that representation to see art from the continent get its due in this lovely plant-covered building in the heart of Paris. But of course, after hearing Moisulu's story, my feelings have changed. I did a virtual tour of the Quai Branly, best you can get in the middle of a pandemic, and I noticed things I probably wouldn't have noticed before. On the plaques where you'd expect to see names, the way you'd see Da Vinci or Picasso, you just see artist unknown on plaque after plaque, artist unknown, artist unknown, artist unknown. Before, I think I would have thought this stuff is old, maybe from an archaeological dig or something. But now it was impossible to unsee what Moisulu was pointing to. In the same way the funeral pole was separated, 
Many of these objects were violently separated from their homes, from the artists who created them, from the family they left behind. Mozilu is trying to make everyone who passes through the halls of the Cabron Lee and the many museums like it see the same thing. And he told Rosie he's got a lot of work left to do. He said that, well, my plan for the future um, is ultimately Switzerland, get ready. Germany, get ready. America, get ready. Los Angeles in particular, get ready. So yeah, I would say in conclusion that Mwazulu Diabanza is coming to a museum near you. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Bethel Habte and Rosie Collier. Marzulu's English translations were read by Moise Gomi. Resistance is produced by Bethel Habte, Wallace Mack, and Aaron Randall, and hosted by me, Saeed T. John Thomas Jr. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVie. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, and Brendan Klinkenberg. Mixing, scoring, and magic by Katherine Anderson. Thank you so much, Katherine. Additional scoring and theme by Bobby Lord. Our music supervisor is Liz Fulton. Original compositions by Drea, the Vibe Dealer. Fact-checking is by Isabel Christo. Our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. Credits music is Shine a Light by Shabazz Palaces featuring Thadalak. Special thanks to Raphael Lazizi, Marianne Renault, Brennan Daldorf, Manuel Jochi, and an extra special thanks to Farah Nayiri, whose reporting in the New York Times first piqued our interest in Marzulu. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. You can find Bethel on Twitter at Bethel underscore Habde. And you can follow us on IG at Resistance Podcast. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast in Gimlet production. All right, see y'all in two weeks.